Hello everyone, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And today we're looking at the mountains and the valleys of the spiritual life. You're very welcome whether you're here for the very first time or if you've been here from the very beginning. This is a project for you and I together, Lord willing to work through the whole Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. However long that takes, I estimate it'll be about 10 years to do this and we're about two and a half years into this project. Whether you're here for the very first time or you've been here from the very beginning, you're very welcome. But please do stick around at the end where I have a little update for you today and I'll tell you lots of ways you can connect and even support this ministry if you so desire. So with that all said, I'll say bye for now and we'll drop back into the main text and I'll see you at the end. Okay, people, today we're looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, the first 13 verses, and considering it as a metaphor for looking at the mountains and the valleys of life. Now, most people would agree that life has its high points and its low points. There are good times and there are not so good times. There are mountains and there are valleys. We all want to remember the special mountaintop moments in life, leaving school, graduating university, a new job, career, engagement, marriage, the birth of a child even. That's why we record these as special events, take photographs, etc. Life, however, is not just one mountain peak after another, is it? Because there are by nature valleys in between. Valleys are those difficult moments, probably times when we'd be more inclined to wish to forget. You don't need me to list them out, but they can range from loss of a job, breakup of a marriage, perhaps even the death of a family member, or your own or a loved one's ill health. However, have you ever considered the thought that the life of faith also has its highs and lows? Spiritual highs might include the day we first fully understood that God loved us and loved us personally and that Jesus died for us. Or maybe it's when you get the answer to a heartfelt prayer. Perhaps a big day for you was the day of your baptism or the coming of faith to a dear friend or family member. Spiritual lows might not be, well, you thinking you didn't get an answer to a prayer or anyway an answer to prayer in the way you expected, or even your own falling short or falling back into old habits, things you thought you'd left behind, or just things that you feel you've not able to have victory over. But what is important to understand about these highs and these lows in our spiritual lives is that there are valuable lessons to learn from both experiences. There are things we can learn when we reach the mountain tops, but there may also be things to be learned in the valley, if we choose to approach both of these things in the same way. So let's today look at this helpful passage of scripture, where we will witness the disciples going from very much a mountain top experience, a real spiritual high point for them, I would suggest, to within a few verses finding themselves in a deep, deep valley. The way they respond to these events may well help us know how we too can handle the mountain tops and our valleys. Can we carry over some of the mountain top experience and bring it with us into the valley when it comes? When considering these verses together today, we're going to look at them and I think as we as our normal pattern and work through them verse by verse, 
and then try and draw some application out of it. But I notice, I think you'll notice as we go through them, they divide very clearly into two parts. The first eight verses of Mark 9, we will be on the mountaintop itself. But then in verses 9 to 13, we're with them in the valley. So let's start with this mountaintop experience. Mark 9, 1 tells us, And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Wow, that's some statement, isn't it, for Jesus to give his disciples? Now, most Bible scholars agree that this is describing what is about to happen six days later, as described in this very next verse now. So verse 1 is referring to what's going to happen here in verse 2 and 3, which says this, After six days, so there you go, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up onto a high mountain. When they were all alone, there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could have bleached them. So Jesus here is transformed, transfigured into something more than just the figure of an ordinary man. His clothes are seen to become a shiny, translucent, heavenly white. He's being transformed, so he appears as he will in glory, not as just this normal man walking the earth. Then this happens, and there appeared before them, that's the three disciples, before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Okay, so that's what happens, but why Elijah, why Moses, why do they appear? Well, most agree they appear here as great historical representations of God's salvation plan in history prior to the Incarnation. In other words, it's the Law and the Prophets. The Law Moses and the Prophets Elijah. Moses, of course, is the one who scribed the Law, so to speak, and Elijah was a prophet, many would say the most significant of all the prophets. And the fact that they are all brought together here suggests to me, and many other Bible commentators, that Jesus is seen to be the one who brings together and fulfills all which had been previously shown and referred to in the whole Old Testament revelation given through both the law and the prophets. This is one of the most important phenomenal events in all of the Bible, in all history one might say. Jesus is transformed into his heavenly state and Moses and Elijah are there with him and that and us in the earthly realm is seen as a way that to verify to these three disciples who witness it and to us today by their retelling of it that this is the authentic representation fulfillment if you like of God's salvation plan for all people. If that isn't a mountaintop experience I don't know what is. It's certainly one for Peter who in the next verse blurts out this Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Now, the word translated as frightened can be a bit misleading in this translation. It's probably better translated, as we see in some other modern translations, as awestruck. This has to do with not being terrified or afraid in the sense, the modern worldly sense, it's more about having feelings of being completely awestruck and overwhelmed, overwhelmed and Peter just blurts out, let's build three tabernacles and three booths. Now implied within this phrase, 
Peter is saying here, let's celebrate. Let's mark this moment by setting up home here. Let's try and hang on to it for a while. This is just like the Feast of Booths where people would set up a temporary home and live with it. So he's saying, let's stay here. Let's camp at this high point. Stay here celebrating what's happening today and live in it. And what we pick up from this, that that's not the Lord's plan at all. The narrative continues in the following verses. It says, Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, there was no longer anyone with them except Jesus. Wow, so here we see Jesus has been transfigured before them into his heavenly state And they see Moses and Elijah here, appear alongside him. And now they hear God himself speak from heaven and say, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. As an aside, I wonder if you've ever had people say to you, why doesn't God just appear and introduce himself and say who he is? And then they say, well, I'd believe in him if he did that. Well, in a sense, that's what exactly what happens to these guys here. If ever there was a spiritual mountaintop experience, then this is it. Now let me just pause here also for a moment and suggest all of us might at some point experience a spiritual high. Probably, in fairness, not quite as probably as high as this high. But the disciples seem to have been in a pattern of experiencing one spiritual high, if you like, after another. One amazing revelation after another. They've heard Jesus reveal life and a life-changing teaching to him. They've been with him when he calmed a storm. When he fed the hungry, they've seen him heal the sick and drive out demons. They've even seen him raise the dead and most importantly, they have witnessed him forgive sin. They have seen Jesus, they've been with him when he's performed one miracle after another and they have seen him deal with the three great enemies of all human beings. He has shown power over sickness, he has shown power over nature and he has shown power over evil. It's been one high point after another. But let me pause for a moment and make an observation about high points in life in general. The first thing we need to bear in mind is that spiritual highs like this do not last. In a sense, just like Peter needed to understand, the party had to come to an end. We too naturally want to set up camp and stay in that moment for as long as possible, maybe even forever. Well, I hate to be the one to tell you, but it doesn't really appear to work that way. Even when you think of experiences when you've been had a great emotional high, of course it doesn't last. Maybe think your mind back. Maybe if you're man, the last time your teen won a great match. Are you still jumping around and cheering today? Yes, enjoy those moments of pleasure when they come along. But remember, to live a balanced human being, the intensity of those emotional highs should rightly fade. But when it's a spiritual high, when we find ourselves in a moment when God is clearly doing something or revealing something to us, then what should we do in the midst of that moment? Should we dance around and celebrate? Well, that might be okay for that moment. But let me suggest that after that revelation, that spiritual high, that point passes, we're meant to pause and try and discern what we are meant to learn from it or what new perspective we should gain through it. Ever stood on a mountain top? In the UK, I often, or used to often, go walking into areas like the Lake District and the Peak District. When you stand on the mountain top, or even on the top of a hill, you do get a new perspective 
of the area around you. And that's what we're meant to gain from these spiritual highs also. Peter didn't get it right now, at this moment, but years later, when he wrote the book of the Bible, his second letter, in fact, he said this, and I quote, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from the Father honour and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellence in glory, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, and we came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is reminding the people, he's recalling this amazing dramatic events, and he's telling the people that this is no fable. In fact, they were the eyewitnesses to the revelation of his full majesty. And then over 30 years later, it's estimated, Peter is saying, we had a mountaintop experience that day. And that, what I learned was that Christ is coming again, so the second coming is not a fable. And you who are in the midst of persecution, the people he's writing to, can be encouraged by this. Because I know when I'm telling you that what I saw on that day, when he appeared in that way, he also told me he will appear in that way when he comes in majesty a second time. And he then goes on to repeat the testimony of God that he heard that day on that mountaintop in relation to his son Jesus Christ. So there's absolutely no doubt that what Peter is referring to here in the midst of dealing with a difficult situation is the experience that he had that day on the mountain of transfiguration as some call it. So what I'm suggesting is that the purpose of the mountaintop experiences is to give us a new perspective and from that new spiritually high vantage point or understanding you ought to be able to see things differently, you ought to be able to see things more clearly and you ought to be able to apply that new fine knowledge into the difficult times in life. But to gain that new perspective, to see things more clearly, you need to keep your eyes and your ears open just like he'd been teaching them just before this event. But you must also have an open heart. In other words, you need to approach these things when they happen with a teachable spirit. If you want to learn from the spiritual high points, if you want to gain a new perspective, you have to remember what God did on that special day. Because if we remember the highs, they can then strengthen us for the lows that lie ahead. I think in reality, the only purpose of the highs is to strengthen us for the lows that will undoubtedly lie ahead in our life. So remember that the next time you feel you're at a spiritual high point in your life. Remember that you will find yourself one day in a valley. Maybe you're actually in that valley right now. Well, that's the point to remember what God did on the mountaintop for you that day. Verse 9 continues the story. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Well, what Jesus says is don't tell anyone, but don't tell them before this other event. But this time his request is different because this time he qualifies the statement. Previously he just said don't tell anyone, but this time he tells them the reason not they're not to tell anyone. He says you're not to do it until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. So the time limit on the telling of these events is now temporary. It's a sort of temporary injunction. 
The text then continues, picking up in verse 11. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. Now, most commentators believe the mention of Elijah here is, is, is a reference to the coming of John the Baptist, as he's declared in the accounts on several occasions as coming in the spirit of Elijah. Remember what happened to John the Baptist, though? That's right, he was killed. And also they killed the prophets before him. So the pattern continues and they're indeed going to kill Jesus. We know that. Luke clarifies this statement by saying the spirits of Elijah concerning the birth of John the Baptist. So I'm not just pulling this out and applying it myself. Luke describes the coming of Elijah in this way, directly related to John the Baptist's appearance before Christ. Luke 1, 13-17 says this, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go out before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. So they've been on a mountain, that's true, a spiritual mountain indeed, and they've now come down from the mountain and they're finding themselves entering the valley, so to speak, well, and literally as well. And for them, this valley that they're going to walk through from this point forward is going to be a long and deep one. You see, they're going to see Jesus get betrayed, arrested, publicly beaten and condemned and ultimately executed in the most painful, shameful way known to humankind at that time. But he told them specifically that's how it was going to be. That's why he said when the Son of, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. Now it seems to me that many people will say that when they get in a pit, they sometimes feel they get stuck there. So let me qualify that and say the lows also do not last forever for those who follow the Lord. The valleys of life, well, for some they may be very long and very deep, but for the believer there is always, always a mountain top, a spiritual high on the horizon. However, that statement is only true if we are responding to the Lord correctly. You see, when the lows come, they can be for our learning, our training, our spiritual development. So what you have to do to get some benefit from our time, from our difficult times when we're going through the valley, is to ask questions. So let me suggest the lows can be times of learning, providing you ask the right questions. Usually when people find themselves in a low, they ask the wrong sort of questions. They ask questions like, why me? Instead of, what do I need to learn from this? You see, it's a very short step from why me to wallowing in woe is me. The mountaintop experience, the whole purpose of it is to give us a new perspective. And the lows are there to teach us, providing we ask the right questions and ask what we've learned in our life that we can apply to help us through the low. So we need to ask the right questions and really listen to what the Lord is saying and what he has said during the good times. 
Okay, let me wrap this up and make a final observation. The important point to know here that there is something to be gained in both the highs and the lows of life. The problem is we only want to stay on the mountaintop. Now the mountaintop is good and those experiences are indeed defining moments in our lives. They can be life-changing events, but they're not permanent events that last forever. What they're meant to do is to be taken and to be drawn upon, to be leaned upon, and in a sense be pulled down and applied into the other areas of our life where the life journey is difficult. And if you understand that correctly, it should be that you have that new perspective, that new flash of insight that you gained, something you may have already known, but you now grab hold of it when you're struggling in such a way to help you through the difficult part of life's journey. You see, the majority of life, I would suggest, is probably not lived on the mountain tops. For these disciples and for us, the mountain top, they can be wonderful, very high, spiritually wonderful experiences, but they are, tend to be brief. But the valleys can be long and the journey can be long also. And the struggles can sometimes get deeper. And for Jesus and the disciples here, it will get so deep it will end with Jesus being crucified. The day of our turning to the Lord, our conversion, is certainly a truly mountaintop experience. And answers to prayers are mountaintop experiences. God blessing us spiritually, even materially, are mountaintop experiences. But when we go through the valley, don't forget what the Lord did for us on Calvary's Hill. We have to learn and apply into our own lives and the lives lives of those around us what we gained in the mountaintop experience. You know, on May the 19th, 1952, someone called Edmund Hillary and a Nepalese guy called Tenzing Norgay reached the top of Mount Everest. They were the first two people to stand on what is called the top of the world. After Hillary climbed Everest, he became an overnight celebrity. He was a household name around the world. He was even knighted by the Queen of England. His name began to appear on sleeping bags, tents, even breakfast cereals. Well, he could have stayed and basked in the glory of his success for the rest of his life and never do anything, but that's not what he did. Very soon, he later returned to Paul, and over the next 50 years, he used his fame to bring help to the Nepalese mountain people. In 1960, he sat down with some of those Sherpas who had helped him get up the mountain and asked him what it was that their people really needed and what they said they needed most was education. They said the children in their region weren't prepared for the future or the world they lived in without having schools to go to. So Hillary, Sir Edmund Hillary as he was then, established something called the Himalayan Trust in 1961 and the first of many small schoolhouses were built. To begin with, the fund focused first on education, but it soon began to expand into health. As we speak today, there are 30 schools, two hospitals, 12 clinics, plus bridges, roads, even an airfield, as well as now today, reforesting the valleries between the mountains. For over 40 years after he stood on the mountain top, on just one day, he spent the rest of his life travelling around, raising funds for the people of Nepal and supervising its distribution. If you were to say on the streets of the UK, what is Edmund Hillary famous for? The answer is nearly always what he did on that mountain top on that one day 
But if you ask Hillary what was important in his life, and if you were to ask the Nepalese people what he meant to them, they would say it's what he did ever since. And I suspect, well, I think I know, which of these two things has the most value in God's economy. Don't get me wrong, friends. Mountaintop experiences are great. Enjoy them when they come along. But living and working and helping and loving those whilst they're in the valley is what God really wants us to learn to do. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. I do hope you've made the decision to subscribe to this podcast. That way you need never miss another single episode. That way you can make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. That way you can join with me every day as we journey together and learn through the entire Bible, maybe going into sections you've never studied before. The place to subscribe to the podcast is on thebibleproject.buzzsprite.com or on whatever platform you get all your podcasts from. The advantage of going to the Bible Project host page is that you'll find active links to all the different ways you can connect and support this ministry, where you can have access to the socials, the Facebook page, even the Patreon page, the place where those that small group of people support this ministry financially every month And I try and put bonus material and bonus episodes there. Stuff that reflects my own personal journey in the Christian faith and things that don't really quite fit within the main Bible Project podcast. It's just my way of saying thank you for enabling this resource to be free all around the world all the time. So thanks to you all, to everyone, whether you're here for the first time or you've been here for a very long time with me on this journey. And I do hope I'll see you back here again tomorrow. New episodes are posted Monday to Friday every week, but you're free to follow along at whatever pace works for you. So with that said, I'll say bye-bye for now, and I'll see you back here again soon, I trust, on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.